talking about icebergs. Now, many of you don't need a science lesson about icebergs, but since we live in Dubai and it's 100 million degrees outside right now, and because some of you grew up here and you may not have much experience with ice, let me tell you something about an iceberg. Now, 90% of an iceberg is found where? Now, under the surface, under the water. What you see above the water is only the tip of the iceberg. There's always so much more under the surface. And this is similar with our lives. You could say that what people see in public is 10% of our lives. The tip of the iceberg is our public life. 90% is private. It's what lies beneath the surface. It's our character, our integrity, our heart, our spiritual life. Well, Redeemer Church, if we want to be effective at our mission statement of making disciples of all nations, if we want to have healthy friendships and marriages, if we want to be faithful employees, we have to have healthy hearts. To be effective in public, we have to be effective in private. So here's my prayer for us as we start our long study in 1 Samuel is that our hearts would be transformed through our study, that when we are finished with our study, we would love Jesus and know him more then than we do now. That out of an overflow of the 90% of what's happening in our hearts, that out of an overflow of that, that 10% would be magnificent. And friends, to that end, let's pray for that now. Oh, Father, set our hearts to fervently study your word this year to know your instructions with exactness. Prepare us to study your word with expectancy and to declare it with confidence, always commending your gospel with courage. May First Samuel conform our hearts to yours. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Life is full of transitions. Seasons of life, schooling, job promotions, changes in family and relationships. Our biggest transitions, though, are into this world and into the next world. Life, death. As believers, our lives are always in transition between the two, between this life and the next life. We're just passing through. Unless Jesus comes back first, our biggest transition to come will be going from death to everlasting life. Now, death is something we all think about from time to time. When you ask most people about dying and the transition to heaven, you get some interesting answers. A Good Housekeeping magazine recorded some answers kids had about death. Some of them are classic. Alan, age seven. God doesn't tell you when you're going to die because he wants it to be a big surprise. Aaron, age eight. The hospital is the place where people stop off for a bit on their way to heaven. Marsha, age nine. When you die, you don't have to do homework in heaven unless your teacher is there too. <laughs> Isn't that true? Kevin, age 10, is courageous. I'm not afraid to die because I have a black belt in karate. And Ralph, age eight, is cute. When birds are ready to die, they just fly to heaven. Well, one day, each of us will face the pain of death. But as Christians, death takes us 
to glory. That's what it feels like going from the time of the judges to the time of 1 Samuel. You might say that the time of the judges is the darkest place in the Bible. It feels like death. The Israelites had entered the promised land. They were to conquer all the Canaanites, but they didn't finish the task. They left God's enemies in. They left God's enemies around the land. And it wasn't just a small compromise. They actually start following the ways of their pagan neighbors. At times as judgment, God gave the Israelites over to their enemies. Periodically, God would show them mercy by raising up judges who were basically warriors to come and deliver God's people out of enemy hands. Samson was an example of one of the last and mighty judges. Well, the time of the judges was horrible. The book ends with rape, murder. Chapter 19 might be the darkest spot in the Bible. A girl's raped, killed, chopped up into pieces. And the way this incident is recorded in Judges 19 reminds us of what we read in Genesis 19. Very similar wording. There in Genesis 19, we have the episode of Sodom and Gomorrah. The point is that the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah is no longer out there among the pagan peoples, but the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah is actually within the people of God. Judges 21, verse 25, the very last verse of the book says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. What was right in their own eyes was mass murder and rape and kidnapping, all kinds of other evil. God rescued his people from Egypt had persevered them in the wilderness. He gave them the promised land, but now things were falling apart. Judges was like death, a dark day. That's the context for 1 Samuel. But in our study of this book over 20 future sermons, we're going to see that the light begins to shine in the dark day. The book of 1 Samuel is a book of transition. The sun begins to rise, flowers begin to bloom, light begins to glisten in the dark day. From death and darkness to a new hope. 1 Samuel is an epic true story about Israel's first kings. There's something in all of us that enjoys an epic story. A couple weeks ago, there was a new movie trailer released for the final Star Wars movie coming out in December. Now, my wife and kids love Star Wars. Now, I've seen the movies, but I never really understand what's going on in them. I'm always having to ask what's going on. Is Han Solo a good guy? What's that space creature called over there? Are Jedi's magical? Is Yoda an alien? And why talk like that, does he? Now, if you have no idea what I'm talking about. I don't know either. I have no idea what I'm talking about, but I know that Star Wars is an epic story. There's so much going on in the Star Wars universe, and every time you watch it, you catch something new. Well, if you think Star Wars is epic, wait until you read and study 1 Samuel. 
An epic story doesn't just tell us something and leave it there. It's not something just intellectual. An epic story invites our participation. We're brought into the story. We feel the emotion. We get caught up in the drama. We identify with the characters. An epic has incredible characters. In 1 Samuel, we'll soon meet Samuel himself, Saul, King David. It's about the rise of the kingship in Israel. Now, the judges were protecting God's people, but the Israelites eventually grew bored with God's way of doing things. They looked around at the pagan nations and they say, wait, 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 wait a minute. All the other nations have kings. Everyone has a king. We want one of our own. Eventually, God granted their demand, but promised they would bring difficulty. Now, First and Second Samuel were originally one book in the earliest Hebrew manuscripts, and they were titled simply as, as Samuel. They were later divided into two books by the translators of the Greek version known as the Septuagint. We don't know the author or authors of the book or the exact date of writing. Samuel may have written some of it, but he couldn't have written all of it because he passed away long before the completion of 2 Samuel. Much of it may have been written toward the end of King David's reign. The setting is in Israel with events clustered around 1000 BC spanning about 135 years. It's about the millennial midpoint between the call of Abraham a thousand years beforehand and the death or the birth of Christ a thousand years later. Right in the middle, a thousand years from Abraham, a thousand years from Jesus, we have the rise of the kings in Israel. When as we walk through the text over these weeks, you'll be helped by following along in your Bibles or in the bulletins you received as you walked in today. We won't always display the text on the screens during the preaching because we'll normally be looking at larger portions of text. We'll at times be jumping around. And so if you don't have a Bible, we encourage you to grab a bulletin. You can open up the bulletin and the entire text will, will be in there. We'd love for you to read it there on your own. Well, let's dive in. First Samuel chapter 1. Without further ado, the book begins with a certain man. Now, hardly a flattering introduction. There's nothing substantive written about him here. He's from Ramathame Zophim, a small town in the very heart of Israel. He's an Ephrathite. It's a man from Ephrath, the ancient name for Bethlehem. The focus isn't on Elkanah, but on his wives. He has two of them, Hannah and Penina. The ordering of the two suggests that Hannah was the first wife. Apparently, after she couldn't conceive, Elkanah took a second wife. Now, lacking an heir was a problem in this culture as it meant the end of one's family line. So taking a second wife was one way to deal with the problem. You see Sarah encouraging Abraham to do the same with Hagar so that he might have an heir. Now, while the Old Testament doesn't explicitly outlaw polygamy with a specific verse, it was clearly not God's design in Genesis 1 and throughout the Bible. Marriage is to be between one man and one woman, something that's made even more explicit in the pages of the New Testament. Now, just because the Bible describes situations like this one doesn't mean it endorses it. Whenever we see polygamy, we see trouble. Sarah, Hagar, Rachel, Leah, it's chaos. Redefining marriage 
always messes things up. And it's not a new thing. People have been redefining marriage as we see here from the very beginning. Marriage is to be a picture of the gospel. Distorting God's design always leads to disaster. It's no different in our text today. The last phrase of verse 2 draws us into the story. But Hannah had no children. When we read that, we're immediately drawn into the world of disappointment and longings. Coming right after the declaration of Penina's children, plural, we can sense the sadness here. The story cuts to the heart. It's a story of pain. And here's the main question our text asks today. If you're taking notes or just following along, it's not really a main point. I don't really have a a main point today, but I have a main question, a main overarching question that our text seeks to answer, and it's this. Where do you go when you're in pain? Where do you go when you're in pain? When life doesn't go the way you want it to go, how do you respond? Hannah really wants a child because she can't conceive. Her husband takes a second wife. She faced social shame as it was assumed that you were facing God's judgment if you were barren. She faced lack of economic security in her old age. Now, for some of you reading this story, you don't just skip over verse 2 quickly because it means something very real for you. Maybe there's something you desperately want Maybe there's a loss that grieves you. It may be that you're like Hannah and you're praying for a child, but that child hasn't come. There's real sadness, heartache. Well, friend, if that's you, we weep with you. I don't know why some couples can have children and why others can't. I don't have an answer for that. But I know this, I know that your value to God isn't based on your ability to conceive. That you're made in God's image regardless. Not having children doesn't make you lesser a person. You may not bear a child, but you bear the very image of God. And God may be preparing you now for children later. He may be preparing you now to foster or adopt children later. Or God may be preparing you not for children, but for a different kind of ministry. Well, perhaps your pain isn't barrenness. It could be health or family brokenness, a lack of a a job promotion, failure to be paid what you've earned, a broken friendship, loss of a loved one, persecution for your faith, a missed opportunity, a shattered dream. Where do you go when you're in pain? Well, let's watch what Hannah does. Verse 3, each year Elkanah, the whole family, the wives, the kids would go worship and sacrifice at Shiloh, the religious center during the time of the judges. This was probably some type of annual family gathering or feast. Elkanah offered a peace offering to the Lord. Part of the animal would be offered up and burned. Part of the animal would have been given to the priest. And part of the animal would have fed those there in the feast. In this case, his family. And so at the gathering, Elkanah passes out some portions to to Penina, portions to 
the kids. But the spotlight is on Hannah, who receives a double portion. Now, the Hebrew here is hard to understand. It literally means two faces or two noses. In ancient Near East rituals, the head of the sacrificed animal was the prized part. It was the favorite part reserved for kings and other dignitaries. Well, you know me, I love to eat, but I think personally I would just pass on this gift. You know, I'm fine already. I have all the nose that I need. I'm okay without a face on the dinner table staring me down as I eat. But in this case, it's likely that Elkanah gave Hannah two of the choicest parts of the animal as an act of love. Panina and her children received plenty. Everyone got a portion. Hannah didn't have anyone else. Elkanah gave her the good stuff. Seems fair enough. Well, throughout all this, Panina would provoke Hannah and irritate her. You can imagine the scene. Hannah comes quietly to dinner, but it's packed with kids. Kids are fighting over food, food fights, kicking, screaming. And Panina says, now, now all you children, quiet down now, quiet down. You're all, you're all so noisy today. Now, does everyone have their food? Oh, they're... There's so many of you, I can hardly keep track of you. Mommy, why doesn't Miss Hannah have any children? Oh, wait, wait, what did you say, dear? I can't hear you. Mommy, why doesn't Hannah have any children? Oh, Hannah, oh yes, Hannah doesn't have any children, does she? But Mommy, doesn't she like children? I think so, Hannah. Oh, dear, Hannah, do you like children? Oh, that's right. You can't have any children. Mommy, doesn't God like Miss Hannah? Well, I, I don't know. What, what do you think? Oh, by the way, everyone, I have an announcement to make. I'm pregnant again. Now, we don't know the exact nature of Penina's ridiculing and provoking. Maybe when something like that, maybe it was even worse, but it went on year after year after year, and it was so bad that to make matters worse, Panina heightened the mocking during this annual occasion of family worship. Hannah was so distraught, she wept, she couldn't eat. And she's given this prized portion, she can't even eat it. Elkanah, bless his heart, tries to encourage her. He says in verse 8, Hannah, why are you crying? Why are you not eating? Why are you sad? Now, I'm not a genius, but I think it's pretty obvious why she's sad. Right? I mean, Elkanah misses it. She wants a child. The other wife is provoking her. But then he asks a worse question. Am I not more to you than ten sons? Now, husbands, let me give you some help today. This is for you. This is free. It won't cost you a thing. This is free of charge. I'm not charging for this life-changing advice. Now, you can probably relate to, at times, your wife being sad. Maybe you can imagine a time she was hurting, you wanted to cheer her up, and you had good intentions, and you opened your mouth with what you thought were magical words. You thought that surely your words are going to encourage her heart. And so you speak up. And you crash and burn. Total failure. Now, husbands, has this happened to you? No, no, no. Don't raise your hands. It's okay. It's okay. God knows who you are. More so, your wife knows who you are. This is what happens here. Elkanah is a knucklehead. 
Hannah wants to have a child. It's her dream to build a family. And Elkanah says, wait, 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 wait. Am I not worth more to you than 10 sons? I mean, look at how awesome I am. Am I not worth more? You got me. You got everything you need. Well, tough to break it to you, Elkanah, but the answer is no. <laughs> no. You're not worth more. Hannah's thinking, I want kids. Men, here, here's the better way for it. Here's my gift to you today. Here's what Elkanah should have said. Oh, Hannah, dear Hannah, sweetheart, you mean more to me than ten sons. Do you see the difference? It's just a kind of a reordering of the words, but it makes all the difference in the world. With or without sons, I love you simply for who you are. That's what he should have said. That'll get you a mil million marriage points in a hurry. So Elkanah doesn't cheer her up. She's still hurting. After everyone else had finished their food, Hannah rose and in verse 10 was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. Where does Hannah go in her pain? Well, to the Lord. She makes a vow to the Lord of hosts. Now, this chapter is the first time in the Bible we see this phrase. Hosts mean something like endless or plentifulness, without number. And Scripture refers to the angelic realm. Uh, it could refer to the armies of Israel and even all creatures. In Hannah's pain, she goes to the Lord, acknowledges God's sovereignty and control over all things. And in verse 11, she says, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. She's making what's called a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite was a person fully dedicated to the Lord with the priests, serving the Lord, but also was marked by abstinence from all alcohol and not getting a haircut. It was normally temporary. You'd set aside yourself to be a Nazarite for a certain period of time. But here, Hannah is offering up a future son for his entire life. This is a huge commitment. Culturally, making a vow in a prayer back then for deliverance was a typical response to a crisis. This wasn't bargaining. God, you give me that and I'll give you this. If you give me that, I'm going to pay you back with something you need. Now, God doesn't need anything from Hannah. In making a vow and casting her prayer this way, Hannah's actually involving herself in the prayer. She's pledging to give the child that God gives to her back to God. I mean, this is incredible. If Hannah was bargaining with God, then she prayed the wrong prayer. Because above her desire to raise a child, she wanted God's glory. I mean, this is, this is, this is wonderful. This is almost shocking. Consider the sacrifice. She's offering to forego the joys of raising her child because at the time of weaning, the child would actually go to live with the priests, would grow up there apart from Hannah. She was forfeiting her status that the child would bring her, any economic advantage, any care in old age. She was giving all of that up. She wasn't offering God something to get what she wanted. She wasn't trying to twist God's arm. She was offering God the very child that she wanted herself to bear a lifelong Nazarite who would serve the Lord. She wanted to play her role in God's plan of salvation. Is this why you pray? 
Is this why you pray for health or money? Is this why you want that new job? Is this how you pray for your kids? What are your greatest ambitions for your children? Is it school admissions, high marks on exams, or is it that they know Christ and serve Him? What is at the heart of your prayers and yearnings? Why do you pray what you pray? Is it for you or is it for God? Hannah's prayer is presumptuous in a good way. She addresses God as the cosmic ruler, sovereign over everything, and it presumes that the God of all creation will care and does care about the broken heart of an obscure woman in the hill country. Her wording comes from Exodus. It's similar to Yahweh's statement in Exodus 3 when he assures Moses, I have certainly looked at the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. Hannah presumes that the God who has seen the affliction of a corporate people would also see the distress of one individual. Hannah's begging God to do what he had done for Israel in the days of Moses. She's calling on God to remember her sufferings because he promises to remember the sufferings of his people. Charles Spurgeon used to say that in prayer we need to assault the walls of heaven with God's word. Oh God, remember what you said. Remember what you've spoken. I mean, the prayers in the Bible really are normally just praying God's truth back to him. This is what Hannah's doing. Lord, if you could do that corporately for the people of God, you can do that for me. I mean, that's the logic in her prayer. You've helped your people in the past. Oh Lord, help me now. Well, Hannah has good theology. She's taken all her golf training center classes. She's passed foundations year with flying colors. She understands that God sees her tears. Oh, friend, God sees your pain. God knows your hurts. There's not one tear that falls down your face that he doesn't see. He knows that we desperately need a new meeting location for our church. He's aware of your visa situation. He knows about the car accident you've had. He understands your pain from abuse you've faced as a child. He knows your anxiety from last night when you were trying to sleep. He knows your discouragement. He knows your depression. He knows your barrenness. He knows your pain. He knows all of it. He knows the pain of the world as a whole, and he knows your pain as an individual. He sees you at work in Bur Dubai, in Dira. He knows. He knows when your boss is unkind to you. He understands your sleepless nights in Sharjah and your stress in Silicon Oasis. He knows your aches in Ajman and your tears in Altuar. God sees. In your pain, you can go to God in prayer presuming that he knows, that he sees, that he cares. Our God is all-powerful and he can do something about your pain. Hannah knows this. Where does Hannah go in her pain? Well, she turns to God. 
And I love Hannah's prayer. She doesn't ask the Lord that her son be famous or well-off or powerful. All that matters to her is that her son be dedicated to the Lord, that he belong to God. And so she cries out to the Lord, speaking her heart. The text says her lips are moving, but there's no audible sound. The point is that she was totally absorbed being in the presence of the Lord. So much so that Eli, the priest, thinks she's drunk, actually rebukes her. Well, this is strange. What does this say about the culture here at the time at the end of the judges? It shows us just how evil the society was. Surely someone in Hannah State must be under the influence of alcohol. Apparently it's more typical for drunkenness there outside the sanctuary than prayer. And Eli, the spiritual leader, he couldn't even tell the difference. Hannah tells him she's not drunk but troubled in spirit. I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. I'm praying out of my great anxiety and vexation. Vexation means to be greatly frustrated or worried. Oh, friend, being a Christian doesn't mean we're going to be happy, clappy all the time. It doesn't mean we just smile and we laugh and we show up here on Fridays and just fake it until we make it. No, being a Christian means there will be sadness, there will be trial, there will be concerns, there will be anxiety. Jesus tells us this in the gospel. He tells us that to be a Christian means that we are to take up our cross and follow him. That means there will be suffering, whether it's persecution, whether it's just pain from being in a fallen world, whether it's the consequences of our sin or other sin. To be a Christian means there will be sadness and there will be trials. Hannah knows this and Hannah's just being honest with God. She's saying, I'm hurting. Yahweh, I'm in pain. And she just talks to God and cries to God. There's no ritual here. There's no sacrifice here. No priestly action. It was the ordinary, marginalized, unordained Hannah crying out directly to God. A Redeemer Church, this is the access that we have to God. Where do you go when you're in pain? Well, some turn away from God in their time of need. This is the pattern we see in life. Someone goes through some tragedy. Maybe their parents hurt them. The church hurts them. Life hurts them, and instead they just, they turn away. They walk away from the faith. This is the choice we all face when we go through pain. Will we run away from God or will we run to God? James 5.13 says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Hannah knew that the Lord of hosts would help her, and she wasn't afraid to ask. And this is a bold prayer. In an interesting prayer, she's not praying vengeance on Penina. There's no pity party, but a tenacious faith. She seems to understand the truth of verses 5 and 6. Did you notice the repeated refrain in those verses? The Lord had closed her womb. There's a tension in those words. Though difficult to comprehend, we understand that the Lord is responsible for Hannah's condition. God ordains all things, including our troubles. Friend, we may never know why we go through 
the things we go through. We may never know all the ways God works through our trials to bear fruit in us and in others, but we know that our God works all things together for his good and for, for, for our good and for his glory. We know that our great God works together all of his purposes together for those who love him and are called according to his purposes, that he will glorify himself. Now, we may not see it, but it's a reason why so many of us have memorized or know Romans chapter 8, because it comforts us to know that God is in control, that none of our suffering is outside of God's rule and reign. None of our trials are outside. He knows. He's planned. And in his time, he will deliver. Now, there are many reasons for our suffering. God uses our suffering to bolster our own faith, to make us more and more holy. God uses our suffering to encourage and challenge others around us, whether it's to sharpen their faith, bring them to faith, or maybe comfort them in their own trials. In Hannah's case, God was doing all that surely, and even more, God was using her trial to be a mirror for Israel to awaken them from the dark era of the judges. Israel was God's barren wife, having failed to give him the children of faith he desired. Elkanah's family was a, a parable of Israel's situation. Hannah's anxiety over having no children, even though Elkanah loved her, parallels Israel's anxiety over having no king in spite of God's love for them. Now, God was doing a multitude of things behind the scenes in Hannah's suffering that she couldn't see in that moment. And yet, Hannah's a hero of the faith because by faith in her pain, she turned to the Lord. And Eli, the priest, answers her in verse 17. Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. When God's kindness, Eli, the high priest, spoke on God's behalf. His words to her were more than well wishes. Her char his character was imperfect, but he was God's mediator, and his words brought her peace. But Eli was just a shadow of the greater mediator who was to come a better high priest. We have a perfect high priest. What Eli represented poorly came in perfection through Jesus. We have a high priest who came to us, one who died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. We have a high priest who was raised from the dead, who sits at the right hand of the Father, who's interceding for us even at this very moment. Now, our high priest comforts us through salvation, and our high priest comforts us through his words as well. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink. Our great high priest says to us, to those burdened and heavy laden, I will give you rest. My peace I give to you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus is the great high priest. Where do we go when we're in pain? Well, we go to Jesus. We go to our great high priest. God's word comes through the priest to Hannah, and the text says she went away and ate. Her sadness had turned to gladness. God hasn't even answered her prayer yet, and she's okay. And if we read ahead, we'll see how God answers it. Next week, we'll look at Hannah's response to God's answer. But do you see, Hannah doesn't even, even have a baby yet, but she goes away at peace with God. Her circumstances haven't changed, but she's changed. 
Rather than letting her circumstances drive her away from God, she's let them drive her to God. She knows and is confident there, walking away from Eli, that God will in some way act. And she has peace. The book of Judges ends with death and darkness. It's a dark day. But after the Judges, we see a ray of light. It's a new day. It's a transition. And in that transition, first, just a few pages before 1 Samuel, you see the book of Ruth. And you see this lovely lady of faith, a woman who trusted God in days of widowhood, trial, lack of provision. And now we meet Hannah, just a couple of pages later, whose name means grace. Both are quiet stories. Right there in the middle of death and the kingship, right in between, we have these quiet stories, not extravagant stories, not grandiose events. They aren't queens, but quiet and faithful women. This is how God works, isn't it? He loves and cares for ordinary people in ordinary places to carry out his extraordinary will. Oh, friend, God cares for you. God sees your pain. God sees every tear. He cares for you and he loves you. He's the Lord of hosts who will deliver a nation and he will deliver you. Go to him in your pain. Let's pray.